Good morning. If I need to apologize to anyone for uh, the, the way that I dress every, every other week, I, I do so now publicly and humbly. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, good to be back in class. I know I was out the last couple weeks. We had a family vacation one week, and uh, I had a work trip uh, the week prior, so it's good to be back with you guys this morning. Um, as, we, as we start off this morning and, and continuing our study of First Peter, I just want to start off by considering a lofty subject for a moment. And that is Mount Everest. Um, yeah, a few of you got that. Uh, Mount Everest, right? Highest mountain on earth. It stands at its peak a little above 29,000 feet. Just for reference, for those of you that fly in the continental United States, that's only slightly lower than the altitude that a lot of your commercial airline flights fly at. So to stand on the top of Mount Everest, you are at an altitude where you could potentially be hit by a commercial airliner. I mean, that's an interesting thing to think about. Above about 19,000 feet, the human body can't sustain itself indefinitely because of the lack of oxygen. So when you get above that, on your summit towards the top of Mount Everest, you're either on borrowed time or you have to carry your own oxygen. Both of those carry their own risks. It's so high that the air pressure on the top is only a third of the air pressure that we're experiencing in this room right now. A summit to the top of Mount Everest takes 10 weeks from the time that you start it. 10 weeks to get up there. Part of that is because you have to get to an altitude, acclimate yourself, then go a little further and acclimate and, and keep taking it in stages. And one of the more humbling aspects for the climbers is as they summit Mount Everest, you'll see the bodies of climbers on the side of the routes that have failed the summit. They're left there because there's no easy way to get them down. So when you set out to climb Mount Everest, you would be setting out to do something that you know is extremely difficult. Right, this is a a task that very few accomplish, and, and when they set out, they know that they're going up against something difficult. But now I want you to imagine climbing to the top of this peak blind. On May 25th, 2001, Eric Weinmayer became the first blind person to summit Mount Everest. All 29,032 feet of it, blind. That takes something that's difficult and raises it to a whole new level. Summoning Mount Everest is hard. Doing it blind seems impossible. That's what we're going to encounter today as we continue on in our study of 1 Peter in chapter 3. Peter is going to lay out something for us that, that is obviously difficult at the outset, but then he's going to ratchet it up to a whole new level as we progress through this passage. And that is that, that following Christ, if we're going to do this the right way in, in Peter's estimation, is much more than, than just being a good person. Right? That's, that's easy. In order to follow Christ the right way, we have to suffer persecution. That's where we encounter something like starting out on a Mount Everest trek that we know is difficult. All of us know that whenever we encounter persecution of whatever kind it may be, that that's going to be a hard thing. We get that. But Peter's going to take that and, and move it to a whole new level as he tells us just exactly how we ought to face the persecution, how we ought to behave, and what we ought to be doing during it. And this is what it all comes down to, is that amid persecution, which is a fact, Christians are called to live holy lives. We do this by focusing on the work of Christ. In the passage, the two things specifically that are going to be called out are Christ's redemption and his protection. And in the middle of that persecution, we're expected to use it as an opportunity to preach the gospel, to witness. And those are not easy things that we're being asked to do. By way of a, a quick review here, uh, to sum up what we've seen in 1 Peter so far, to put this in context, 
there's a couple ways to break down the book, but, but here's a, a way that I think is helpful as we head into this morning. The first half of chapter 1 was Peter's description, and an amazing one, of the blessings of our salvation. Right? He talks about the inheritance that we have and, and how blessed we are. The latter half of that chapter he is a summary call to action. Right, it, It's the high-level overview of, of what he's going to get into. And Gary led us through that a few weeks ago. Then we're, we're taught how to live as believers in a wicked world because the world that we live in is not the ideal one that God initially created. And then Peter gets into all of these various factors in our lives and how we are to live like Christ amid them. Christ-likeness in our political and social relationships. You remember that was, we, he talked about how to respond to authority. He gives Christ as our example in all things as he progresses through this. Then he went through Christ-likeness in our personal relationships. That was slave and master, husband and wife. And now, in, starting in verse 8, we get to Christ-likeness in persecution. So that's the basic flow of where, where we are today. So if you would, if you haven't already opened to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read verses 8 through 17. Peter says this, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You can kind of see there the amount of times that Peter talks about suffering or reviling or insults or being treated evilly, what the context is for this entire passage. And he starts by saying, to sum up, right? This is not a summary of the previous things, the, all the different areas he talked about Christ-likeness. This is just the, the final thing in his list. In this part of the letter where he's talking to us about how to be like Christ, he said, hey, this is the final area I'm going to give you for right now. And he does it by giving us five adjectives. Now, if you're like me, and I'm just being honest here, when I see a list of adjectives in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, I tend to sort of skip through them all. Like, okay, yeah, it's, it's all a bunch of synonyms to say be good, right? Well, that's not what Peter's getting at here. These five adjectives that he gives are extremely unique. In fact, four of the five appear nowhere else in the, in the New Testament. This is the only time these words show up. And the, the one that does show up only appears one time. So Peter's intentionally using some very non-ordinary, uncommon words to try to specify a type of behavior to those he's talking to. And what we'll see is that he's getting at an internal attitude of service. That first word there, harmonious, literally in the Greek is like-minded. To have the same mind as, to think the same as, to have the same type of thought patterns as someone else. And he's speaking here of fellow Christians. We are to have the same mind, the same thought process as other Christians and be in harmony with them. This is what Paul said in Philippians 2, too. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, 
maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Peter says you ought to be walking in unity with the brotherhood. Sympathetic is feeling in a like way with someone else, not necessarily just for the bad. In our language, we tend to use sympathy in the connotation of something bad happened and we feel bad along with you. The word really just means to feel the same as, so it can be rejoicing with someone as well. Thirdly, brotherly. Again, literally, this is brother-loving. One of Peter's favorite themes in this book. He mentions loving the brotherhood or other Christians in chapter 1, verse 22, in chapter 2, verse 17, here in 3, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8, and chapter 5, verse 14. In every piece of this letter, Peter continually comes back to loving your fellow Christians. The fourth one, kind-hearted, he opens it up not just to how we ought to behave to fellow Christians, but to everybody. Kind-hearted is, is just a word for compassionate. It just means to feel strongly about someone, specifically with an aim towards helping them. You're saying you ought to be looking around and, and feeling in ways that would offer your help to other people. This is the one that's used somewhere else in the New Testament, only once, Ephesians 4.32. Paul says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And finally, humble in spirit. Literally, this is humble-minded. The root word is the same word that was translated harmonious in the first adjective, but means like-minded. Peter says, be like-minded with fellow Christians, be humble-minded with everybody. I like the fact that he intertwines humility in the mind because humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. He said, you should be focused on other people. And really, that last one is a great way to sum up all five of these because when you look at those, they're all focused externally. Peter says, your internal attitudes ought to be completely focused on other people, on Christians specifically and on everyone else you meet. Your internal attitude ought to be that of service. Well, then he moves in verse 9 to external actions. He says, if you have these internal attitudes, here's the way that it ought to be visible to other people, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Now, there's two things to note in the first half of this verse that we have to kind of wrap our minds around. First is we can see that the context Peter's talking about for all this passage is, in fact, persecution. Right? Implicit in the statement that when someone insults you, you shouldn't return an insult, or when someone treats you badly, you shouldn't treat them badly in, in response. Implicit in that is the fact that we are being insulted and treating, treated badly. That was something that the Christians he was writing to were already familiar with, and it was going to get worse. So we said, here's persecution. But we got to think about that because sometimes, you know, we look at them and we're like, oh, I, I get it. I mean, they were being hunted down and in some cases killed for their faith. And, and so, yeah, you know, this was a big deal. But, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't face that. Right? And that's true. We ought to be grateful for that. That still happens in some places in the world, as we know, even today, but not in South Lake. <laughs> so what does persecution look like for us? Right? We need to have that clear because otherwise we have a tendency to skip over all this and go, it doesn't really apply to me. Well, persecution here in South Lake or Grapevine or wherever in this community, we, first we ought to be grateful that it's not life-threatening, but it shows up. Right? This could be the interviewer that, as you're going through your interview, suddenly is not as interested in you now as he was a moment ago before you mentioned that you're active in your local church. These could be the, the snarky comments you get people about how you're bigoted and narrow-minded as a Christian because you don't endorse the political and liberal agenda of the day could be an employer who passes you over for promotion because you don't endorse those agendas that they're seeking your endorsement for. It can be more direct, too, right? 
Perhaps you've been fired or slandered, right? Had incorrect things said about you by someone merely because they don't like Christians in general or they don't like the fact that you're one. And let's be realistic. Even the more direct and more serious persecution in this country is ramping up and it's coming. Right? In the past several years, there have been numerous pastors who were put in jail because they espoused a biblical viewpoint on a topic such as homosexuality and it was labeled as hate speech. And they were put in prison. That's something that we tend to think, well, that only happens in foreign countries. It happens here too and it's only likely to get worse. If you are living an open, unapologetic life of service to Jesus Christ, you will face persecution of some kind. Jesus himself said this in John 15, 20. He was speaking to the disciples and he said, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which they did, they will also persecute you. Christ promises us persecution if we're living the way we ought to. So this lesson of Peter's then is for you, it's for me, it's for anybody who claims Christ and seeks to follow him the way that he expects us to. So that's the first thing that we see in in the first part of verse 9. The second is that there's no ground for neutrality in the Christian life. Notice that Peter doesn't stop when he just says, don't return insult for insult or evil acts for evil acts. He doesn't stop there. The next phrase is, but give a blessing instead. It's not enough for us to say, well, my coworker treats me badly, but I don't insult them back. Hooray for me. Peter says, great, that's half of the equation. Now the other half is you ought to turn around and bless that person. Now's when the climb starts to get a little steeper, right? Not insulting people, not backstabbing, that's usually not too bad. But blessing the person who's treating us in an evil manner, insulting us, slandering us, that, that starts to get to be a bit of a rough climb. But he says that's what's required. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4.12. He said, we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. And when we are slandered, we reconcile. They're saying, look, not returning evil acts for evil acts isn't the end of it as a Christian. You have to go the next step and bless the very people that are treating you in a terrible way. Jesus said this at the very beginning of his ministry, Matthew 5.43 in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're to have external actions of blessing. Now, in the last part of verse 9, Peter gives us the motive, right? Why are we supposed to do these things? We said, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead for, there's that little connecting word, because, here's why, here's the reason, you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. He said, look, your motive for being able to do this thing that's unnatural and difficult is because you got exactly this. You were called to receive a blessing, and so you are called to give a blessing in return, and make no mistake, the blessing that we got was undeserved because we were the ones reviling Christ and insulting him by our disobedience and rebellion when we served ourselves. Peter says, you were the the bad guy in the situation and Christ blessed you anyway, so now when people treat you that way, you're to bless them because that's what Christ did for you. And he specifically says inheritance, right? He calls us right back to that amazing description of our salvation in chapter 1. You remember what he he talked about, about our inheritance in heaven and the the properties of it? Incorruptible, undefiled, doesn't fade, reserved in heaven, protected by the Father, 
He said, that inheritance is what you got, and that's what ought to motivate you to be able to bless those who are persecuting you. Because that's what you received. 1 Peter 2, 21, when he was talking about Christ as our example, he said, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Sound familiar? While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He said, you have to do this. Christ exemplified it, and he demands it of us if we're following him the way that we ought. Peter links our holy living, this difficult call to, to bless people who treat us badly with the motive of that's what happened for us. So that was Peter's appeal. He said, look, this is how holy lives ought to be lived amid persecution. Start with your own internal attitude. That should show itself in blessing and serving those who, who aren't treating you well. Keeping the, the end goal in mind. But now because he knows this is a difficult thing to ask of the Christians there and that, that are dispersed across the region being persecuted, he's going to do what a lot of us teachers do, right? And he's, he's going to quote somebody else. He's going to go to the, the big guns, right? So up here, you know, we would often quote people like C.S. Lewis or Martin Lloyd-Jones or Tom Pennington, right? All the greats of the faith. All, all the people that we know you guys trust more than us. And so Peter is going to do the same thing, right? He's going to go right back to the Old Testament and he's going to quote someone who has this exact parallel structure in one of his passages. And so he goes straight to David. And he says, look, this isn't just me telling you that you got to do this hard thing. Let's go all the way back to King David and see what David has to say about this. And so the next two verses, verses 10 and, well, three verses, 10, 11, and 12, are quoted from Psalm 34, verses 12 and 13. And i got to give you some background on this psalm because it, it's an interesting story. The whole story can be found in 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. I put that on your notes. You can go back and reference it later. But David is fleeing for his life from King Saul. Right? I mean, that happened on a couple of occasions. And so this particular time, he's trying to escape Saul. And so he runs to the king of Gath, to Abimelech. And he thinks, maybe the king of Gath will give me some refuge. Right? I can go there, and, and he'll protect me for a little bit from Saul. Problem is, as he comes to the king, all of the king of Gath's servants go, hey, whoa, whoa, this is the guy that Saul has a problem with. Right? They're, they're in a conflict. Giving him refuge may not be the best thing for us, king. In fact... It might be wise if we turn David over to Saul. And so now David, thinking he's gone from a place of persecution into a place of safety, suddenly finds himself in a second situation of persecution where the king of Gath might just grab him, lop his head off, and give his head to Saul as a, as a peace offering. So suddenly David's in a very precarious position. So what does he do? <laughs> he acts like a madman. He starts drooling into his beard and scratching things. I don't know where he came up with the plan, but it works. The king of Gath looks at David, and then he turns to his servants, and he says, why did you bring me a madman? I have plenty of those in my own court. Ooh, that had to sting a little. He's like, get this guy out of here. So they let David go. David runs free, and then he writes Psalm 34 as a thank you to God for his deliverance and being his protector. So even in the, the text that Peter quotes, we can see the backdrop is the same. Persecution, deliverance, I'm going to thank my God. So here's what David says, verse 10. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 
So David starts here the same place that Peter did with an internal attitude, specifically of purity. Now you might say, well, he's talking about speaking. That's, that's more of an action, not an attitude. Well, not really. David frequently talked about words as the overflow from the wellspring of the heart. Psalm 1914, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. They're linked. Job 33.3 says it this way, my words are from the uprightness of my heart. So David says, look, your, your lips ought to be pure in the way that you talk, and that comes from an internal attitude of purity and uprightness before the Lord. Internal attitudes of purity. Next, he goes to the same thing Peter did. He said, look, if you've started in the right place with yourself, you've got your attitudes focused correctly on following God, then your external behavior is going to show it. Here's what it should look like. Verse 11. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Now, clearly, he's turned to actions. Look at those verbs. Turn, do, seek, pursue. Now he's talking again about how this internal attitude manifests itself in order to be seen by every, everybody else. And like Peter, he leaves no room for neutrality. He doesn't stop when he says, you have to turn away from evil, period. That's good enough. Nope. In fact, he stresses the doing good part three times more than the not doing evil part, right? There's one clause on not doing evil. There's three on doing what's required. Do good is sort of the, the overall, and then he specifies, specifically here I'm talking about peace. You must seek peace and pursue it. What does he mean there? Seeking peace is trying to find a resolution to conflict whether you are the one that created it or not. It's not enough to say, well, I didn't start this argument. I didn't start this fight, so I'm good. No, David says you need to seek peace, search for it, create it. He says you need to pursue it. If it's not happening easily, keep going. Right, the picture here is chasing after someone who's running away. If peace isn't coming easily to your situation, Keep at it. It's your responsibility is what he's saying. External acts of peace. This is how our attitudes ought to manifest themselves. And then finally, just like Peter, he says, if your internal attitudes are right, they're manifesting themselves in the right actions towards even those that are persecuting you. This is why we're able to do that difficult thing. Here it is, verse 12. For, because... The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. He said, here's how you do this. I get it. It's hard. Right? David understood this. Saul tried to kill him on multiple occasions. And you remember, even when David had the opportunity to kill Saul in the cave, what did he do? He said, I'm not laying my hand on the servant of the Lord. He understood this. And he says, the motive is our protective father. Right, if you look at that, he says the first thing to be aware of is that God is aware of your difficulties. He said the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. This word toward really means into or a part of. What he's saying is not only is God looking, right, he sees the situation you're in, but he sees you because he has been actively following you. He is intent and purposeful in, in watching what's going on and being aware of what's happening with you. His eyes are toward those that follow him. And then secondly, not only is he aware of the situation because he's tracking you, but his ears attend to their prayer. Again, that word attend is actually the same word in the previous verse. It means into, his ears are into following a part of your prayers. It means not only is he hearing what you're saying, but he's hearing it with an attitude of involvement. 
He's not just aware, he is involved. Now, his actions may not be what you and I want, but he is involved. David says he is aware, he's tracking, he's listening, and he's doing it with a purpose to intervene in your situation for his glory and your good. That's why we can act in this way, even to those who mistreat us. Those that aren't following don't get the same protection. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I don't want to be on the flip side of that coin. So, our motive. God's listening to your prayers. This is what we read in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. It's a familiar verse to most of you. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, it's not just that, it doesn't stop there, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Again, if we're asking according to his will. Internal attitudes of purity manifesting themselves in external actions of peace, even towards those who started the conflict, because our Father is aware of and dealing with our circumstance. So what's the, the conclusion here to this living holy lives amid persecution? What, where does it get wrapped up? Well, first, we've got to keep Christ's work in mind. That was the reason that both Peter and David gave for being able to complete this steep uphill climb. Dealing with persecution, just enduring is difficult. Blessing the people that are causing it and seeking peace with them, ugh, that's a steep route. He knows it. So he says, look, you've got to focus on the end game. That was Peter's focus. Look, you have an inheritance. It's at the summit. It's reserved in heaven for you. It's up there. You've got to keep that in mind as you, you work through this difficult trek. And David's focus was, hey, on the way, between now and when you hit the summit and get that inheritance, God is aware of and protecting you. You've got to keep those things in mind. That end game and the present protection is what allows us to move through the persecution, not just to endure it, but to live in a holy way where we're seeking peace and resolution with those who are treating us ill for our faith. Keep Christ's work in mind. And then we get to verse 13. And at first reading, and even as we read this earlier, it may seem like in verse 13, Peter makes a statement and then sort of has to backpedal in verse 14, right? Verse 13, he says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, it's a rhetorical question. Peter only uses this, this type of argument, a rhetorical question, twice in the book. And he says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And it, it naturally begs the, the negative answer. Well, no one. But then in verse 14, he says, Okay, well, you know, even if you do suffer a little bit, I mean, it's going to happen, right? And it kind of seems like he's sort of backtracking, like, oh, I made this bold statement. Uh, I may have overreached a little bit. Really, people can hurt you, but it's okay. That's not what's happening. There's actually a break between verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 is the conclusion to Peter's point about living holy lives amid persecution in verses 8 to 12. Verse 14 is the start of an entirely separate point, which we'll get to in a moment. What he says here in verse 13 who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? What he's saying here is be bold because no one can harm you. Now, the word that he uses there is important. He says, who is there to harm you? That word harm is, again, a rare word. It's only used six times in the New Testament. The one most closely resembling the context and the structure of the way Peter uses it is in Acts 12, verses 1 and 2. And talking about the early church, it says, now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to harm them. There's our word. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. So there's Herod's version of harm. 
Hey, I'm going to harm the church. How am I going to do that? I'm going to start lopping heads off with a sword. Right? Th- this is not a flesh wound. That's what the picture of harm is. It is a permanently disabling someone from completing whatever it is they're about. And Peter says, look, you can live holy lives because no one can do that to you. Now the picture there for us is, is like a soldier on a battlefield, and after the battle, he's been shot. He's got a gunshot wound, and he's laying on the battlefield bleeding out. That's the picture of harm here. And he knows, I can't finish the battle. There's no one here to help me. I'm bleeding out. That's the picture that that Peter says, look, no one can do that to you. If you're following God, if you're choosing to live your life according to the way Christ directs us to, following in his footsteps, no one can take you off the battlefield. It's not going to happen. Why? Because of the things that he's already given us a reason for. Because we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, Right? No one can take it. No one's getting to the summit before you to steal your inheritance. He says it's reserved in heaven, protected by the Father. So they can't take you off the battlefield because they can't take that inheritance from you. And if God is the one protecting you, no one's getting through that protection. First Peter 2.24, he says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. See, the reason you can't take a death blow is because Christ already took the death blow for you. You can't be harmed in that way because Jesus was harmed in your place. It's already happened, just not to you. We're secure. So Peter says, be bold. Nobody can truly, eternally harm you because of what Jesus has already taken for you. So be bold. Bless the people who are persecuting you. Seek peace with them. Reconcile with those people that you just wish would walk off a cliff. Do it boldly. You're protected. It's an amazing thing for him to say, and it's a great way to sum up his point about holy lives amid persecution. We can do it boldly because of what Christ has already done for us. Now that's the end of Peter's first point. Then verse 14, as I said, takes us into a second point. And the first thing that Peter is going to say, again, sometimes seems like, like a backtracking of the previous one, but he uses a very different word in verse 14. He just said in verse 13, look, no one can deal you a death blow. Verse 14, but if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. That word suffer there is a very different word. Whereas the word harm was uncommon in the New Testament, this word suffer shows up a million times in the New Testament. It's common. This is the picture not of a soldier who's bleeding out from a death blow on the battlefield. This is a picture of a soldier who's in the trenches. He's cold. He's wet. He's hungry. He's tired. He's lonely. He's homesick. He is suffering. But he's not mortally wounded. That part can't happen. But Peter says we can suffer. There are going to be difficult times. That's going to happen, but it's not going to be a death blow. So this is a new point, right? What, we, what should we do amidst the, the suffering? How should we act and what should we be focused on? And he says, first, you need to understand that, that when you suffer, when it comes, you are blessed. Now, again, this is where the, the climb gets steep, 
right? Looking at suffering when we're in the middle of it and going, oh, this is awesome. What a blessing from the Lord. That is not an easy thing. That's climbing up a steep slope. He says, but, but that's how you need to learn to see it. It's reminiscent of Christ's own words, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 11, and 12. In the Beatitudes, Christ is describing the characteristics of a kingdom citizen of God. Right? If you are a kingdom citizen, this is what it looks like. And in Matthew 5, 11, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. And then Jesus gives a reason. Sounds an awful lot like Peter's. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Where do you think Peter got it? Jesus says the same thing. Look, when, when hard times come, you should be glad about that. Yep, that's difficult. I get it. You should rejoice. That's hard. But you can do that because at the summit, your inheritance and your blessing is waiting. When the tough times come, rejoice and be glad. Then in the latter part of verse 14, he gives them another thing to focus on during persecution. It's again an Old Testament quote. He's actually quoting from Isaiah 8, 12, and there's some interesting parallels there, but we don't have time to get into it. But he says, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So he said, when you have the right perspective, when you're looking at suffering as something that's a blessing from the Lord because of what is ultimately yours and can't be removed, if you're looking at it that way, then you don't need to be intimidated. When you face this kind of persecution, which you will, and in their case, they already were, said, don't be intimidated. Yeah, I, I get it. That's hard. It's interesting there when he says in the, the NASB, it's translated, do not fear their intimidation. Those two words, fear and intimidation, are actually the same word. One is just the verb form and one is the noun form. What he's saying is don't fear their fearsomeness. Don't be afraid of the fact that they seem fearful. Don't be troubled. You can't be truly harmed. You can suffer. But if the perspective is right, you don't need to be anxious about that ahead of time. Don't let the world intimidate you. Okay, well, if we're not to be intimidated, what are we to do, right? It's good to have kind of half of the equation. This is what I shouldn't do. But, but what should I be doing? That's where we get to verse 15. He says, but, right, in opposition to. Hey, don't be intimidated. But here's what I do want you to do. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now that is still a quote from Isaiah 12. Although in Isaiah's version, he says, sanctify the Lord of hosts, which again, there's a lot we could get into with that and why Peter chooses that. But in the Greek, and he just sort of interpolates Lord of hosts as Christ, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now to sanctify means to, to set apart, right? To view as holy or preeminent of the most importance, of the highest order, and unique. He says, in your hearts, in what you value, the most unique, the most holy, the most idealized goal ought to be Christ. Sanctify Christ. Put him there. Not your own good, not your own safety, not your own well-being and ease. All of those things should be subject to Christ as the preeminent driving force where? In our hearts. Now, we've talked about this before. Hearts, in, in the, the language of the time, did not mean emotion. We tie that with emotion. Hearts was the center of a person in the Jewish language. It meant their mind, their will, and their emotions. 
how you think, how you prioritize, how you make decisions, and how you feel. All of it. He said Christ ought to be the driving factor for all of that. That's how you prepare. If you're going to be ready for the, the storm that's coming, Peter says, you need to stand in awe of Christ, not be in awe of what others might do to you. You need to use Christ's standards of holiness, not the world's standards of what is good. You need to seek Christ's promises, not what the world may or may not promise you if you go along with them. Christ ought to be driving all of that. What did Christ promise? He gives us this in Revelation 2.10, speaking to one of the churches. Jesus himself says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Again, sounds pretty similar. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Permanent, eternal, blessed relationship with me forever that no one can touch. That's what's at stake. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we go through preparing ourselves now? What does that look like in order to be able to say, yeah, I... I'm, I'm trying, it's not perfect, but I'm trying to sanctify Christ as the Lord of my heart. What does that look like? Well, I don't have a magic formula for you. It's the same things that we say week after week when we're talking about anything up here. We talked about how to deal with anger when we studied Proverbs and the, the practical steps that allow us to do that beforehand. We talked about how to be faithful in your marriage and the practical steps that allow us to do that beforehand. All of the things are the same. It comes down to this. Read the word, pray the promises that are in the word, have conversations with other believers that are directed and sanctified by the word, and show up with other believers to worship the one who gave us the word. It's not a complicated formula, but sometimes it can be difficult. Understand that if you're not in this daily on your own, not just when you show up to this building, then you are not preparing yourself for persecution, and it's coming. You have to train now. That all has to be done beforehand. Just like all those other things, when you're in the midst of persecution, if you have not prepared yourself by remaining in the Word, worshiping Christ with other believers, discussing the things you find there, if you have not been doing that as a regular practice, you will not have the right internal attitude amidst persecution and you will not be able to do the difficult task of blessing your enemy and seeking peace with him. It won't happen. Peter says, prepare yourself. This is what you have to do. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And then he just ramps it up one more time, right? The, the climb's getting steep already. We can't just endure persecution. We have to bless those people. We have to seek peace with them. Right, we have to be doing all these difficult things. And he says, but here's one more thing that I want you to do. And this is really the crux of his second point. So the, the first part of verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, was the directive. And here's the result. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now that's a familiar verse. Most of us have heard that. Right? Those, those words ring true even if... You didn't know the reference. You didn't know that verse was found in 1 Peter 3, 15. The words probably sound familiar, right? We've always heard that. Oh, always be ready to give an answer for the, for the hope that is in you to anyone who asks. And, and usually the picture is this, right? Someone comes to you and they say, hey, you know, I, I'm 
I'm just intrigued because the way that you live your life is, is different than most of what I see, right? You just walk through some difficult things and, man, you handled that really, really well. How do you do that? Or, hey, how do you keep such a positive attitude amidst all this stuff that's going on in your life? Like, I don't understand that. Can you explain that to me? And the idea that we usually get when this verse is referenced is, you know, a genuine seeker coming to us saying, hey, I want to know about what you have because it seems beneficial. And then the verse is used to say that, hey, you ought to be prepared and ready to to explain that to them. And that's true. But that's not at all what Peter is saying in verse 15. That's not the context. We just walked through verse 14 that said, hey, you're going to suffer. It's coming. If you look down at verse 16, it says, And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, this is all about suffering. And verse 15 is not wedged in there out of context with some genuine person coming to you saying, Hey, tell me about what you have because I want that. No. This is you being attacked for your faith in the middle of suffering and persecution by people that are attacking you because of your faith. And in that context... Peter says that's when you need to be ready to give a defense of your faith to anyone who asks. Who is it that's asking? It's your persecutors. That's who you have to defend your faith to, and that's the the better translation. Some translations say, and, and give an answer. That's not the correct use of the word. The NASB and the ESV get it right when they say, be ready to make a defense. It's a legal term means defending yourself, give a defense of your faith. He says, this is what you have to do in the midst of persecution. You ought to be preaching the gospel to your enemies. This is where we've reached the last part of the the summit, and it's so steep we're using ropes and carabiners and looking down at 10,000-foot drops. You want me to do what? I either want to get away or I'm hoping that like David often said that a millstone drops on this guy's neck. I'm not ready to preach the gospel here. Peter says that's the call. The call is to preach the gospel to your enemies. And he adds at the end of verse 15, with gentleness and reverence. And that makes a lot more sense, right? When you look at this verse out of context and the the attitude of a seeker coming to you asking to to have what you have, why would Peter have to say and do it with gentleness and respect? Of course you're going to be gentle and respectful. But that's not the context. He has to remind them to preach the gospel with gentleness and respect because you're preaching it to the people who are mistreating you. So he adds that in there. Hey, by the way, when you preach the gospel to them, do it with gentleness and respect. In the right context, that makes a lot more sense. This is not easy. But we saw this with Jesus during his trials, didn't we? He never insulted anybody. He never said any harsh word to any of the people that were lying about him, slandering his name, falsely accusing him of everything. He did defend himself with the truth when asked questions, but in a gentle and respectful way. And we even saw it on the cross. That first of Jesus' recorded sayings from the cross, when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, was likely when he was being nailed to the cross. You and I will likely never face a situation of persecution where someone is in the middle of physically torturing us and being called on to bless them, but that's exactly what Jesus did. Peter and some of the apostles learned this lesson as well. In Acts chapter 5, 
They've been arrested by the Jewish council, put in prison. An angel comes and breaks them out of prison. And unlike me, if I'd just broken out of prison, I'd be looking to hide. No, the angel says, go to the temple and preach. They're like, okay, that sounds good. So they just got broken out of prison. They go to the most public place they can find. They stand up and start preaching. So what happens? They get captured again. Right? The guards come and tell the Jewish council, hey, those guys aren't in prison anymore. They're in the temple preaching. The council says, well, go get them. Right? They go arrest them a second time. They bring them back before the council again. And the council says, look, we ordered you not to teach in Jesus' name. And you're doing it again. And here's what Peter says. Acts 5, 29 through 32. But Peter answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What's Peter doing? He's preaching the gospel. He just set forth Christ as what's necessary for the whole nation, but also for these, these men in the Jewish council for their individual forgiveness. And he's doing it with gentleness and respect. And who's he doing it to? His enemies. These are the guys that just threw him in prison, and they're just about to do worse than that now, and he knows it. But he's preaching the gospel with gentleness and respect to his enemies. A and they did do worse. This time, they don't just put him in prison. They beat Peter and the apostles. They're flogged. And as they go away, a few verses later in Acts, it tells us that they went away and they praised God for being worthy of being beaten for his name. That is someone who understands how to climb a steep peak. Thank you, God, for the fact that I was worthy enough to be tortured in your name. And I mean, we can look at that and understand that's the whole reason Christ came to earth, is it not? To preach gospel to his enemies? That's you and me before we were saved. We were the enemies. We're the ones that he came to preach the gospel to amidst our rebellion. And he did so with gentleness and respect. So what's the application for us? Well, as we look at this, this whole passage, but especially the last part, verses 14 to 17, I, I want us to think about who's, who's writing this. But a lot of times we look at what the Word has to say, and there's great things. We pull it out, and there's things to learn, but we're kind of not thinking about who wrote it and where they came from. And that's okay. We can still learn that way, but, but it's more important to understand the background. This is Peter we're talking about, telling Christians how to act in times of intimidation and persecution. And so let's think back to the end of, of Christ's earthly ministry before the crucifixion and the last interaction that Peter had with Jesus Christ before the resurrection. It's his denials. This is the place that Peter's coming from when he's telling these persecuted Christians how you ought to act. He's not coming at this from a, a position of success. Hey, this is how I did it in the past. This is how, how awesome I am here. Let me, let me tell you to be like me. Peter's coming at this from a place of utter and abject failure first. He didn't learn this lesson early. He failed. I mean, go through and think about the things he told them to do, and you can see exactly where this comes from. Right? He tells them not to be intimidated. But during the trials of Jesus, and there were multiple, remember, Peter was overcome with intimidation. He was so intimidated on what might happen to him if people knew that he was one of Christ's disciples, that he lied about who he was, where he was from, what he had been doing. He lied about everything because he was intimidated. 
And then he tells them, hey, what you need to do to prepare for this, right, prepare by focusing on Jesus, why does he give them that? I mean, there's a lot of different ways he could have put this, but, but why does he say you need to focus on Christ as the driving force to prepare for, for your situation? Because he did the opposite. He, didn't, he wasn't focused on Christ. He tried to distance himself from Christ. Every time all the, the servants came, and they did it multiple times, and said, hey, weren't you with him? He's like, I don't know the guy. He tried to distance himself as much from Christ as possible. That was where he started. And then he tells them to be ready to defend their faith. Why? Because he denied his. He had an opportunity and an audience in the courtyard outside Christ's trials, where at the very time Christ is being falsely accused and slandered, Peter could have been standing up in the courtyard of all those people listening and saying, no, he doesn't deserve that. You want to know what that guy's about? He loved people. He healed people. He even raised people from the dead. He could have been preaching, but what did he do? He denied everything. And then he tells him, hey, by the way, when, when you defend your faith, do it with gentleness and respect. Why? Because he did exactly the opposite. Not only did he deny Christ, he did it using foul language and vile curses. If you remember Mark chapter 14, verse 70, after the, the servants had various times, had already asked him, weren't you with one of them? The final time, Mark 14, 70 and 71, after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean also. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. Peter did exactly the opposite of everything he just instructed these Christians to do. Which is why when he gets to verse 16, he says, look, your, your conscience has to be clear Conscience there is just a moral self-awareness. Right? That means understanding how closely we're walking to the ways that Christ laid out for us. He says your conscience has to be clear because his was not. John tells us during those trials, after Peter denied Christ the third time and the rooster crowed, that they locked eyes. There was eye contact between Christ and Peter. And what do you think Peter felt at that moment? Did he have a clear conscience? No, he was crushed with guilt and shame. So he's saying, look, don't, don't be like I was. That is something that he carried with him for the rest of his life. He knew he was forgiven for it. He got that. And I believe the look that Christ gave him was one of love and compassion. But he still felt that. He said, don't, don't do that. Be prepared. Understand what's coming. And then in verse 17, we see that, that Peter learned his lesson, right? 17 is just a summary of everything else that he had said. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you should suffer for doing what is right. right? That's not the way he felt in the courtyard during the crucifixion. He was trying to get out of suffering. He was trying to escape whatever persecution was coming his way. But by the time he gets to writing this to the Christians in the first century, he's learned his lesson, right? We saw that in Acts 5. He was willing to be beaten for Christ then and be glad about it. He learned. So he's saying, look, look, take it from me. I messed this up in every way possible in the beginning. But I understand now. So you guys can learn from me without having to go through what I went through. So how do we live these holy lives? It's great to say that this is how we're supposed to do it. How do we get there if we're not there now? How do we have internal attitudes of service and purity like Peter and David called us to? Pray. 
How do we have the strength to bless and make peace with our enemies? Pray. How do we have boldness in living this kind of a life amid being mistreated because of your faith? You seeing a pattern here? Pray. Again, these are not magic formulas. This is what we're called to, and this is why it's important. Because if you don't do it now, when the persecution comes, we won't be ready. You don't start training to summit Mount Everest the day the expedition begins. It's way too late. You train beforehand. This is what we ought to be doing now when we're not facing stiff persecution. Or maybe you already are. That's okay. Start now. But we have to be ready before it comes. You can't wait until it's time to climb the mountain. And how do we use persecution to witness to our persecutors? How do we get to that place where Peter, having just been broken out of jail, knowing that he's about to get something much worse than that, still preaches the gospel to the Jewish Sanhedrin? How do we get there? Pray. Train now. Read this daily. Pray through it. Meditate on it. Have conversations about it. Start your preparation for Sunday morning on Saturday night. Tell this to my kids. I think I just said it last night. Right? Preparation for Sunday morning starts Saturday night. It means going to bed early, getting lots of sleep so you're not tired during church. You can come up, be here, be focused, and ready to worship and learn. All these things are how we train so that we can preach the gospel to our enemies. And then finally, the way that we do this is Eric Weinmeier was the first blind man to summit Everest, but he didn't do it alone. He had a team. Nobody summits Everest alone. You always have a team. He was part of a group that helped him. That's the same for us. If we're going to do this, if we're going to live holy lives and be able to witness to other people amid persecution, you and I have to be part of a team. That's why we have Christian brothers and sisters. That's what small groups and family groups and Sunday school classes are for. This is our team. This is where we find people that help strengthen us and that we can help encourage when they need it. And ultimately, the one on our team that's going to carry the most weight is Christ. Because we can do all things through Christ and nothing without him. If we're going to do this right, we have to understand that Christ is what's driving us. He's the motivating force and he's the goal at the top of the mountain. He's all of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great and gracious God to give us such help amid time of trouble to give us a Savior who not only came to save us, but who suffered the way that we do now and more, suffered the eternal consequence that we will never have to pay so that we can look to him to, to carry our load and help us when the climbing is steep. Thank you for the fact that you didn't call the Christian life to be an individual climb but that you give us families and friends, brothers and sisters in the faith, so that we can summit this mountain together. And Father, while we are grateful to you that we live where we do in an environment where our persecution is not often life-threatening, we pray that in whatever form the persecution takes for us, that we would be able to come through it not just to endure, but to live holy, sanctified lives with our internal attitudes being correct, 
our external actions displaying the kind of behavior that sets us apart as followers of Christ. Understanding that you've given us an inheritance that is far beyond what we can imagine. And no one can take it from us. And knowing that you are watching and involved as we get from here to there. I pray that we would do what's necessary now so that we would be prepared when you bring the rough times to test and refine our faith. And that we would get to a point of being able to see those and considering ourselves blessed to suffer for your sake rather than running. May this be what we aspire to and may this be how we apply ourselves. Lord, I pray for the next hour as we go to to learn more from your word and to worship you with, with others on our team, that it would be a time of encouragement, a time of learning and training and of correction if necessary, that our hearts would be refocused to sanctify Christ above all else. We ask these things in Jesus' name.